How does the Supreme Court consistently rule against the interests of the poor? Adam Cohen will join us to talk about his new book, Supreme Inequality. Are we really preparing our kids for life in the modern world? Madeline Levine will be here to talk about her book, Ready or Not. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Adam Cohen is here now to talk about his new book, Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Adam, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. That's a very ominous and pointed subtitle. I want to get into that in a moment, but I want to start first with your last book before this, Imbeciles, because it also looked at some pretty grim history in American court history. And talk a little bit about that book and how you got from there to here. The last book, Imbeciles, was about an infamous 1927 Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell, in which the court actually upheld eugenic sterilization. It said that the state of Virginia could sterilize this poor young woman just because they thought that her genes were bad and that she was feeble-minded. So it was one of the worst cases in Supreme Court history. I thought it wasn't appreciated enough, so I, I was happy to shine a light on that. But as I was writing that book, it did occur to me that many of the same themes in that book about how the court really favors the the powerful over the weak and the rich over the poor are just as true today. And I thought, why not take it into a modern context? So this new book is looking specifically at how the Supreme Court treats the poor, the disadvantaged, but during a more recent period than the previous. Correct. And I picked, I think, a very interesting period and and a framing that I think people don't think about enough. But the last 50 years, it's not just an arbitrary half century. It's that something very specific happened 50 years ago. Nixon was elected in 1968, and he had a vision, which was to end the liberal war in court and to replace it with a conservative court. It's amazing how quickly he was able to do that. In three years, he got four appointments to the court and completely shifted a court that had actually actually been on the side of the weak and the the poor and criminal defendants and folks like that and shifted it into a conservative court that we live with today. So there's really a 50-year period from when Nixon took over the court to right now that has all been a right-wing court with right-wing chief justices. And in that time, they've done a lot of damage. So when people say the more in court, it's kind of shorthand for a liberal, maybe more activist to use a phrase that some use, period during the court's history. But what were some of the major decisions that happened under when when Earl Warren was the chief justice? So the Warren court really is, as, as you're suggesting, quite legendary. When he came in in 1953, within a year, they handed down Brown versus Board of Education, which not only was this, you know, milestone in that it began the process of desegregating education, but also he managed to make it a unanimous decision. So it was really an amazing start for his tenure. And then throughout the Warren years, he they handed down decisions like the Miranda decision, which said that, you know, you have a right to remain silent. You have to be told that if you're arrested and you have a right to a lawyer in Gideon v. Wainwright. And then actually they were doing things for actually for poor people, welfare rights decisions. They were striking down the poll tax. So this went on for quite a while. And as I say, it really ended on a dime when Nixon came in. Richard Nixon has of late begun to look more liberal compared with more recent Republican presidents. And I feel like he's sort of almost having like a kind of revisionist Nixon moment, but not so here. You do hear that now. You say, well, you hear people say, well, Nixon, you know, favored the environment. But no, Nixon was, uh, as we've heard before, a terrible, terrible man. And and he really was in respect to this 50-year period on the court because not only did he make these four appointments that completely shifted the court, but one of the things I really try to shine a light on is that he used dirty tricks to create this conservative majority that, that we still live with. Now, what is that specifically? Well, he got four appointments because one of the four vacancies that was there, he created a man named Abe Fortas. Abe Fortas was the most liberal member of the court, always ruled, you know, in favor of the poor and students and, you know, civil rights. Nixon wanted him off the court, and Nixon actually engaged in some crazy dirty tricks where he investigated Fortas for Fortas had done some things that were ethically 
a little dubious, but they did not break any laws. They did not break any court rules. Other people did similar things. He had a financial arrangement with a foundation, which isn't great, but also isn't grounds for removal from the court. But Nixon had his attorney general, Mitchell, who ended up in prison himself for Watergate crimes, go to the court and threaten Fortas through the chief justice. And the threat was that Fortas would be criminally prosecuted and that his wife would be criminally prosecuted for some other thing that she didn't do. Fortas ends up resigning under this pressure, and that's one of the four seats. And as my story unfolds in the book, it becomes a critical seat because some decisions that completely change the course of American legal history, a couple in particular about education that have made our education system very unequal, would have come out the other way if Nixon had not bullied and threatened Fortas off of the court. So who did he replace him with? He replaced him with Justice Blackman, who at that point was quite conservative. Harry Blackman. Harry Blackman. We now know him as the liberal he was at the end of his life, and he wrote Roe v. Wade. But in the beginning, he was known as one of the two Minnesota twins. He had been childhood friends with Chief Justice Berger in Minnesota, and he voted with him in a conservative way for quite a while. So that was a, a vote that ended up being against the students and against equality in these education cases. Before we get to those education decisions, who were the other three Nixon appointees to the court? Berger is a new chief justice, then he appoints Blackman, and then two arrive on the same day, Lewis Powell and Rehnquist, who was at that point a rather obscure Justice Department official and, of course, later goes on to become a chief justice. All names we still know today, but we perhaps don't know these two education cases. So what were they? Critically important. So in 1973, they decided a case called Rodriguez v. San Antonio School Board. This was such an important case. There was a big movement nationally to say that the Equal Protection Clause says that when the government runs public schools, it has to run them equally. It has to fund schools equally across the state. So this was a lawsuit brought by poor Mexican-American parents and kids in a school district in Texas suing over the fact that just a few miles away, there was a very wealthy school district that spent much more on its kids. And they argued that the Equal Protection Clause said funding should be equal for every student in the state. It won at the federal district court level. And in fact, this claim was winning across the country in state courts, in federal courts, and Academics were writing books about how, of course, the equal protection requires equality of funding. And then it gets up to the Supreme Court. And because of these new Nixon appointees and because Fortas had been replaced, five to four, the Supreme Court says the Equal Protection Clause does not require equal funding, changed the course of education history dramatically. And as I say, it's really because a seat was stolen. And we would have different public schools today. We would have schools in which every kid got equal educational opportunity. So that was the first one. And then a year later, there was a critically important desegregation case called uh, Milliken v. Bradley. And what this was about is the court had actually been doing a pretty good job of integrating the South after Brown versus Board of Education. It took them a while, but it was, it was really happening. The civil rights movement wanted to come North and integrate the schools in the North. To do that, they wanted to integrate metropolitan areas because places like Detroit with white flight, the Detroit city school system was heavily black, and then the suburbs were heavily white. And this, the NAACP, representing black school kids in Detroit, argued the only way we'll be able to get an integrated education for kids in the cities is to create an intra-district remedy that would take in the city and the suburbs. And again, this won at the district court level, and the district court judge in Detroit worked out a really nice plan in which Every school district, they would create new school districts that wouldn't follow the urban-suburban line, would reflect the racial composition of the whole metropolitan area. So every school district would, in that case, be 70 percent white. So it wouldn't be this case of taking white kids from the suburbs and sending them into the inner city all on their own. It would have created really an integrated system for the whole Detroit area. The judge ordered that. The Intermediate Court of Appeals upheld it. And again, five to four because of Nixon's changing the court. The Supreme Court reverses it and says, if you're on the other side of a district line, if you're in the suburbs, you are free from any integration order pretty much. And that was what year? That was 74. So that within two years, because of Nixon's quick change of the court, education law just ricocheted in a very unequal direction. I want to go back to that first case for a minute in Texas. So was the inequality because the funding was based on local 
property taxes? Yes. And there, there was state funding as well. But what the lawyers for the school kids were arguing is that isn't how it should be. You know, the education system is a state system, right? The, the state is in the business of providing education. And there was state funding. There was some kind of an equalization formula that didn't really equalize it. But they just said it shouldn't be a local matter. This, the state of Texas is educating its kids. And the state of Texas, under the Equal Protection Clause, has to educate everyone equally. But yes, the Supreme Court in this five to four ruling written by Justice Powell says local control is what's important, that we need to let the localities decide what they want to do. So together, these two decisions basically negatively affect both the poor and minorities. Yes, and continues to this day. And, you know, so one of the things I talk about in the book is imagine if it were different. Imagine if the court had said every student in America has the right to an equal kind of education, equal and integrated. And there is a lot of social science data showing that if you are at a school that is underfunded, if you're at a school that's hyper-segregated, you're going to have worse life outcomes. You're more likely to be unemployed as an adult. You're more likely to end up in prison, things like that. Imagine if in 1973 and 74, we had said, no, every kid in America has a constitutional right to the same start in education. And as I say, we came so close, five to four And if they had brought these cases just a little earlier before Nixon had been able to completely shift the court, they would have won. All right. From one depressing outcome to another, let's talk about income inequality, because obviously there are many causes to income inequality. Often those conversations come down to, you know, discussion of tax policy and economic policy. But you say that the Supreme Court exacerbated income inequality through decisions that it made. What are some of those decisions? You know, when we think about the near record levels of, of income and wealth inequality we have in America today, people tend to think about, first of all, large social forces like globalization and automation. But then they also look at policies generally from Congress and the president. What I argue in the book is we are not paying enough attention to what the Supreme Court has done to promote inequality. So one thing I do is I, I point out that in there's something called the World Inequality Report, which is done by Thomas Piketty and other economists. And in 2018, they looked at inequality country by country around the world. In the United States, they said there were two main drivers of this huge increase in inequality. One was unequal educational opportunity, and the other was regressive taxes or insufficiently progressive taxes. So unequal educational opportunity, as we've just discussed, really it's, it's, it's Milliken and Rodriguez. The Supreme Court decided we would have unequal edu- educational opportunity. They could have made the other decision. For our tax system, which is, is really not progressive and they, you know, we've kept lowering and lowering the, the highest tax rate on, on the wealthy, that's directly attributable, as I argue in the book, to the campaign finance decisions, right? I mean, in early 1970s, we didn't have this idea that money was speech, that, that people had a right to contribute or spend an unlimited amount of money on campaigns, the Supreme Court created that right. And by doing that, we now have a system where big money, and with Citizens United, they extended to corporations, big money is now so influential in campaigns that really the rich control government, particularly on tax policy. So if you look at the Trump tax law that just passed a couple of years ago, polls showed the voters very much opposed it. And they they saw that it was directing you know the, the biggest savings to the wealthy. But the big campaign financers liked it very much and were requiring it. And they were saying publicly, we will stop contributing money if you don't pass this tax bill. The reason we have that tax bill and the Bush tax cuts and others before that is because of the Supreme Court giving so much power to the rich in political campaigns. I think people are familiar with Citizens United, and a lot of the discussion recently has been specifically about that decision. But you're also talking about earlier decisions with regard to campaign finance. What were those decisions, and when did they happen? Absolutely. So, right, people use now, they use Citizens United as shorthand for that's when everything went wrong. But, right, in fact, things were terrible before. It really started in 1976 with a case called Buckley versus Vallejo. And that's the case where the Supreme Court said money equals speech. They didn't have to say that. And, in fact, it's another case where the court below, in that case, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, said the opposite. They said money doesn't equal speech. And and in fact, that when Congress passes a law putting pretty heavy limits on campaign contributions and campaign spending, they're allowed to do that because they're trying to ensure that the democratic process works. The D.C. Circuit had it right, but then the Supreme Court comes along and reverses that, says money is speech. And in that case, they struck down all the limits on campaign expenditures. They kept the ones on contributions. But once you say that rich people can spend as much as they want in campaigns, you've really opened the door to 
huge amounts of special interest influence. And then over the years, they struck down more and more regulations and, and it got worse and worse. But it was really, you know, people say that the original sin in campaign finance law was that statement by the court in 1976 that money equals speech. A book came out a couple of years ago that I'm sure you're familiar with, We the Corporations by Adam Winkler, which looked at kind of the long view of the history of corporations kind of acquiring rights and protections in the same way that individuals have. And I imagine there's some overlap in terms of what you're talking about in this book in that you're saying that the Supreme Court very often ruled in favor of corporations and corporate America. Can you give us some examples of that? There are quite a few. One thing that I found particularly maddening, and I wrote about this as a journalist and I was happy to revisit it in the book, is the Supreme Court has really eviscerated punitive damages. It used to be that when corporations did terrible things, you know, the Exxon Valdez spill, there was a case that the court heard where an insurance company just completely screwed over a policy owner and said, you know, we want you to take this case to trial, but we will protect you and we will pay all – if there's any judgment against you, we'll pay everything. They, they totally – lie and they don't pay everything and the you know and this poor man and then it turns out that there were internal records according to some of the evidence in the case that the insurance company was particularly targeting its customers who were weak in some way or vulnerable and this was a guy who had had to had I think some strokes or had cerebral palsy so there corporations do terrible things and the one one of the main ways we have to keep them in line is juries are allowed to award punitive damages as they did against that insurance company as they did in the Exxon Valdez case the supreme court came up with this I think completely made up doctrine that says the due process clause says that punitive damages have to be in a ratio of something like nine to one to actual damages. So you end up getting the Supreme Court is saying when we have a hundred twenty million dollar punitive damage award against an insurance company, we're going to take it down to nine million dollars. That's a huge, huge gift to corporations. And if a jury can't keep them in line with punitive damages, they're going to do a lot more bad things. And so one thing that I contrast that with in the book is at almost the exact same time, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on three strikes and you're out, where laws were sending people to jail for 50 years to life for shoplifting a few things. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not a constitutional violation. So at the same time as they're saying the due process clause says we can't punish these poor corporations with these large punitive damage awards, they're saying, well, we can send someone to prison for 50 years for shoplifting videotapes. So that's just one example of how this is a court that's been very, very concerned about us not harming or hurting or disrespecting corporations and really not concerned about people in many cases. So those are cases of individual people. I want to talk about one other area that touches on corporate rights, which is worker rights and unions. And was this a period during which there were decisions that were ruled in favor of corporations and against workers' rights. Absolutely. And, you know, the very beginning of my book, when I was writing the introduction, you think, like, how do I want to start this? How do I tell this story? How do I really show what this was all about? And it's exactly what you're saying, what they did to workers. I begin with three stories of individual workers who— Terrible things were done to them at work. The first woman I write about, she was the only African-American woman in the catering department at Ball State University. The woman who directs her day-to-day activities uses horrible racist language around her, Sambo, and slaps her at one point. And another colleague talks about her relatives in the Klan, and they threaten her. And it's just a horrible, horrible fact pattern. And she sues Ball State. And the Supreme Court rules five to four, well, you know, Ball State isn't liable for the actions of that supervisor because she wasn't really a supervisor. Although she controlled her activities on a day-to-day basis, she couldn't hire and fire. So it's three cases at the beginning of the introduction of the book where the court has found these little technical ways of saying that corporations that have treated workers horribly are not going to be liable. So that, and then also on a bigger scale, there's a famous case of just a couple years ago, the Janus case, where the court said that government unions can't require non-members to pay fees for being represented. And that Janus case is, is doing terrible damage to the public sector unions, which are actually now larger than the private sector unions. So that one ruling, which I, I think the law is entirely made up in it, is really, really a blow to the whole American labor movement. So the court's been very busy in this regard. So when these kind of decisions get made, when laws like this get passed in Congress along these lines, people will often say if they're on the side of labor or the poor, they will say, well, this is lobbyists, you know, corporate lobbyists spending a lot of money and these people in Congress are beholden to them in order to get reelected. Supreme Court, you're on it for life. So 
that can't really be the sort of force behind all of this. Presumably, there is some kind of ideological basis for these kinds of decisions. If you could describe it kind of succinctly, what the justification is on the part of these justices in making those kind of decisions. I mean, how would you describe it? How do you think they would describe it? They always talk about how they're really ruling on the law, and we look to the original intent, or we we try to get the intention of the Congress that enacted a piece of legislation, or we're just trying to read the statute in its most common sense way. They always say we're just doing law, but I think it's very clear that they're doing politics. And the way we know that they're doing politics is, look, since Nixon ran for office saying, I'm going to find some justices who are going to change the court and make it conservative, that's what... All these Republican presidents have done. There was no question when Trump made his appointments that we're going to look for who's the best interpreter of laws in the country. No, they were going out to conservative groups and saying, we promise to find you someone who is going to think the way you do on issues like abortion and on issues like, you know, corporate rights and and so forth. So what is that mentality they're looking for? I mean, I think we would say conservative Republican values. But I also think, and this comes out of the first book we talked about earlier, my book, Imbeciles, I think there are just people who by nature are more sympathetic to the strong over the weak. They identify with hierarchy. They want the people on top to have a lot of power, and they're fine with crushing the people at the bottom. That tends to be the, I think, the psychology of the conservatives on the court right now. They would never say it that I was going to say, presumably that's not how they would describe not it Not in any way, no. And, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, is a very religious man and went to mass every Sunday when he was at Harvard Law School and Harvard College. No, they don't see themselves that way. But if you look at their decisions, somehow when it's a corporation, when it's a rich person, they're there. But when it's a poor person or black people in the Voting Rights Act, somehow it shakes down five to four along those lines. I have so many more questions to ask you. Not enough time. I want to ask one final question, which is moving forward, we have a Supreme Court that's gone through a lot of change very recently, two new members on the court, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. There's been a lot of kind of prediction about what change is going to come, maybe not as much conversation about what their approach might be to issues around poverty and class. What do you see happening under these under this particular court? My guess is that they're lying low until the election, but I think there are five votes right now to do some rather dramatic things. You know, one thing that people have not focused on much is I think there are now five votes to declare affirmative action unconstitutional, right? That's something Roberts has wanted to do. That would be a huge change in our society that would absolutely affect poor people and certainly minorities a lot. There may be votes for other things like that. And then I think, you know, this election is so crucial because Justice Ginsburg, God bless her, is still there. But, you know, there are going to be some more appointments, you know, probably in the not-too-distant future. And if Trump is reelected, we could see a court that is much more right-wing activists really going after the social safety net, you know, maybe striking down things like food stamps and social security. There's some radicalism that could come if if things change much more. All right. So (laughs) at least according to this book and to your argument, not looking good. Well, you know, but everything can change on a dime. Maybe we'll get a president who makes a bunch of liberal appointments and we'll be back in the war in here. I don't think so, but, you know, let's try to end on a positive note. All right, Adam, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Adam Cohen's new book is called Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Madeline Levine joins us now from San Francisco. Her previous books are The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well, and her latest is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. Madeline, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I want to talk about your subtitle and a few phrases in particular. You describe the current environment as rapidly changing and uncertain. Technology is obviously an obvious kind of big change that's going on. So I want to get into that. But first, let's talk about some of the other changes in terms of the economy and demographic change and climate change and where that's leaving kids today. The bifurcation in the economy has had 
a very significant impact on how parents are parenting. You know, if you see things as either winners or losers, which is what has happened in this country in terms of wealth and and uh, not having enough money, then you you know parents are used to having their kids outperform them, do better, uh, have a better life, and that's not happening. And I think that it makes parents go back to what I would consider kind of an outdated scheme paradigm schema of parenting because it's all we know, but we certainly want to protect our kids. This all comes out of a need to protect or a feeling that this is the way to protect kids from falling socioeconomically, um, which is what is happening in the country. In terms of climate change, while that's incredibly unfortunate that that's happening, it's an area in which I see kids being increasingly active and proactive. Um, willing to stand up and take a role at a time when I had started to feel that kids were becoming increasingly passive. So I see that as a positive. I think you're the first person to offer anything positive out of climate change. So thank you for that. (laughs) Because it's something that I think about in that it starts from a very young age. You used to watch nature documentaries as a child, and it would just be like the wonderful grizzly bear. But now every nature documentary, even for very young children, will say, you know, there are very few left and sort of have a lot of, of kind of gloom and doom. And you think it's it's interesting to think about the way that this might impact kids who, even as they're learning to appreciate nature, are also imbued with a fear that it's going away. I think kids are imbued with the fear about just about everything, whether it's mass shootings or the climate or the economy, which is part of what's driving these increasingly high rates of anxiety. When I wrote Price of Privilege, it was one out of five kids had an anxiety disorder. Now it's one out of three, and one out of three adults as well, by the way. So I didn't mean to say that climate change is a positive. I I want to be clear about that. It's a horrible thing, but I... I think it's the one issue that has mobilized kids. And going forward, when times are very uncertain, optimism is critical because otherwise you kind of fall into despair. So the fact that kids have taken this issue on and see nature, you're absolutely right, through a different lens than we did. You know, we saw those things and took it for granted. They understand they have a responsibility to continue to be able to see nature. So I think that their interest in it, every kid I know, I have three sons, every kid I know is aware of climate change because it will impact them incredibly if there's not something done. And instead of feeling helpless about it, most of the kids I know feel they can make a difference and are not passive. I like that. Well, let's go back to the anxiety, not okay. to not to bring us back to a troubled place, but that's a lot of what your book is about. You talk about the increase in anxiety disorders. Also, I think probably just a kind of general sense of anxiety, you know, the incidence of that is very high, but not just among kids, as you pointed out, among parents. And I'm interested what you find about the relationship between those two anxieties. Is parental anxiety rubbing off on kids? Are we helping to unintentionally exacerbate our children's anxieties? So the answer is yes. (laughs) And I think it works in a particular way. Everybody's nervous, right? And there's a difference between being nervous or anxious, which we're supposed to be some of the time. It's our early warning signal and having an anxiety disorder. So when the World Health Organization uses that number one and three, they're not saying, well, you're anxious because you just read the headlines. They're saying you're impaired. And I think the reasons for these higher rates are many, but let me step back one minute and add to the conversation that anxiety disorders have a 30 to 40% genetic component. So it's known that We all carry in us, not all of us, many of us carry in us the possibility of having an anxiety disorder. What decides whether or not that will actually turn into a disorder? That's the whole field of epigenetics, which is where the environment meets the genetic and triggers the gene. So since there are these rising rates in the, I wrote the price privilege, what, like, I was writing it maybe 15 years ago, came out 12 years ago. 
our genetics haven't changed in the last 12 years. So that means you have to look at the environment for the reasons why these things are escalating. And I think the environment has evolved in a way that makes anxiety more likely. And when parents are anxious, which we have reason to be anxious, but not to have anxiety disorders. Anxiety itself makes us aware, puts us a little bit on guard. Anxiety disorders don't. And the relationship between the parents and the kids is if I'm a mom and I'm struggling with my own anxiety, and then my kid says, I'm really scared the the dog's going to bark at me, or I'm really scared of this sleepover, it's going to be all the popular kids, or I don't want to go to sleepaway camp because it's not my bed. And the parent who's already anxious doesn't need any more anxiety in their life, doesn't have the bandwidth to handle it, and so says to the kid, well, we don't have to go by the dog, we'll go around the block. Or you don't have to go to that sleepover, let's have it at our house. Or you don't want to go to sleepaway camp, that's fine, you can go to camp in the neighborhood. Each one of those things, being afraid of a dog or any part of that, which are normal developmental concerns of childhood and and adolescence, every time we accommodate to them, because we're already anxious and we don't want our kids to be more anxious because they're so pressured at school and they're so pressured to perform. But every time we accommodate to a normal developmental challenge, we rip away the possibility that that kid can master it on their own. And I think that running theme of let me accommodate to the things that make you anxious in all the wrong ways, right? We're not in front of schools with picket signs saying, you know, nine hours of sleep, American Academy of of Pediatrics says it's mandatory. We're not doing that. We're attending to our family. We're hunkering down and we're giving a pass or accommodating to anxiety in all the wrong ways. And just to add one thing to that, we know that when we treat a kid for anxiety, we do well. But when we treat a kid and the parent for anxiety, we do twice as well. Is that because that accommodation for those easily, or maybe not easily, but those opportunities to confront and overcome fears, are we avoiding those because so many of the things that provoke anxiety, like climate change, like the economy, like the changing demographics and and changing opportunities for kids, more difficult in many ways. Is it because those things are so big that we can't help our kids out necessarily with those, and so we are helping them out in these other ways that feel more within our control? Yes, to some degree, but that doesn't fully explain why, for example, we're not saying you have to go to bed at 11 o'clock or you need to talk to your teacher, you're taking three AP courses or your counselor, I really don't want you to take four. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other interventions that we could be making that we're not. Um, And I I think that we intervene in these small ways because you're right, it's manageable. Anxiety And the relationship to uncertainty is that when things are uncertain, we make a particular kind of decision. And those decisions tend to be overly reliant on our community, quickly made, and not critically thought out. Because uncertainty doesn't feel good to the brain, right? So we're trying to solve it as quickly as possible. So if we can solve it by driving around the block, that's a pretty easy fix for the uncertainty of, well, if she walks past, she's going to be upset, and then I don't know what I'm going to do, and she's going to cry. And So we try to get out of uncertainty really, really quickly. But in doing what's right in front of us, you know, what, what you've said is true. Those are the things that are right in front of us, and they're easy to accommodate to, but they take away the capacity to learn to manage, which is why we now have all these emerging adulthood programs. This past year, I've probably sent six kids to what's now called emerging adulthood programs, and that's for kids who just haven't learned how to manage themselves or their emotions or make the bed. When do kids go to a program like that? At what age? 
say usually like 20 to 26, that age group. Those are kids who have been, for the most part, accommodated throughout their lives. I recently was in Silicon Valley and had one of the CEOs down there ask me this question. Does my child need to learn how to make a bed? Which I thought was an incredible question to ask. And I asked him why he asked it. And he said, well, I don't have to make my bed. I have staff. So why does my kid need to learn how to make a bed? And what's missing from his analysis is hopefully his kid's not living with him for the rest of their life. And they'll go out in the world and their girlfriend or their college roommate will say, what the hell's the matter with you? Go make the bed. That skill set, that normative skill set of knowing how to do stuff, and that includes managing how you feel and not smoking weed all the time to manage how you feel and not using other substances to manage how you feel. But being able to manage yourself is something that I'm seeing, which I never saw before. 20 years ago, there wasn't programs. There weren't programs for emerging adults because most kids knew how sort of a basic foundational set of skills for managing themselves and their feelings. That's an interesting comment because that's coming from someone who lives in Silicon Valley who has a staff to make his bed, which we all don't do, and and your practice is in Marin County. Are these problems that primarily affect kids who come from privileged backgrounds? Is this a kind of upper middle class, upper class white problem? Because a lot of kids, you know, no one's there to make their bed if they don't. I think that was the original assumption when I wrote The Price of Privilege, and there was a tiny run on the book because it was because of the title of Privilege, and it became really a bestseller, New York Times bestseller. Why? Because it wasn't really just affluent families at all. So do I feel that these are issues for kids in poverty? They've got a whole bunch of other issues, and their families have a whole bunch of other issues that I don't think I'm covering. But I do think I'm covering issues for the majority of families, whether it's working class or middle class or upper middle class or affluent. Just for transparency, I live in San Francisco, not Silicon Valley. But the kids I see range from kids from working class families to the wealthiest families in this country. And this push to accommodate kids, I see regardless of socioeconomics in my practice. Last question. Again, back to the subtitle. It's very interesting that you choose the word thrive. You say preparing our kids to thrive in an uncertain and rapidly changing world rather than succeed. And that seems like a significant difference and that people maybe sometimes mix those ideas up. But what do you mean by thrive? Success has been very metrically considered, right? We talk about grades and colleges and cars and raises and all those kinds of things that have become the markers of success. I've spent 35 years treating kids and you can have all these markers of success, which was what started this. My interest in this, we had always felt that Socioeconomic status and parental interests were protective of mental illness, and now they're not. And that was the original question I was trying to answer. So over this period of time, I've come to believe really strongly that as long as we stay focused on a limited notion of success, if we had a bigger tent for success, I might have said to succeed, but I don't feel that we do. I feel we have a narrow view of success, and that that in no way ensures that kids are going to do well. And so at the heart, you know, what everybody wants for their kid is for them to grow up and be healthy and have good relationships and find something they're interested in, and that's thriving. And I use it because the word success to me has come to mean, and to to the parents I see, has come to be a metric based, which is only one piece of doing well in life. Thriving is definitely a goal we can all agree on. Madeline, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. Madeline Levine's new book is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World.
Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Barry Gouin, and Concepcion de Leon. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi. All right, let's start with you, Tina. What are you reading this week? So I'm reading a very old Ruth Rendell novel called Vanity Dies Hard, which I actually picked up at my library's most recent book sale. I love the book sales. I find all kinds of treasures there. And this time I found someone's complete paperback collection of Ruth Rendell. And I read many of her later novels and her Inspector Wexford series, but I, for some reason, hadn't picked up or seen a lot of her novels written in the 1960s. And this one, I believe, is only the second standalone she wrote. So she's just getting started. And it's about a wealthy 38-year-old woman. When you start the book, you think that she's middle-aged. She's described as a pleasant, blue-eyed English woman, no longer very young and never worth a second glance. What year was this published? 64, I believe. So that probably was middle-aged Probably considered middle-aged then. Right. So she's married. Her husband is 10 years younger. His name is Andrew. She's lavished expensive gifts on him, a car, a gold watch. We know he's very handsome. But in typical Rindell fashion, as she builds this picture of this woman and the picture-perfect little English village she lives in with its gabled buildings, you know, and charming high street with window boxes filled with flowers, malice starts to creep in in the tiniest of ways. And I don't know what's going to happen yet, but I watch Alice, the main character, as she, you know, steps into her house and looks in the mirror and starts to fuss with her hair and her brooch and her scarf, you know, wondering if she's attractive enough for her 29-year-old husband. And what has happened is that one of Alice's best friends has gone missing, and she's on a mission to find her. And she stopped, the point of the book that I'm at, she's been stopped by her husband. She's ill and she can't get out of bed and her husband seems very reluctant for her to leave the house and he doesn't want to call the doctor either. So bad sign. The thing is, I'm sure it's not going where I think it's going. Barry, what book are you reading? Mainly what I've been reading are newspapers, magazine articles, blog posts, anything on the election. And, you know, with all the twists and turns, it absolutely drives me crazy. So I've had to retreat from that. And I've retreated to two of my favorite authors, Emmanuel Carrere and Hannah Arendt, of all people. And they, they are both wonderful relief from current events in, in, a, in a certain sense. And let me begin with Carrere. A few weeks ago, we published a long essay review by Robert Gottlieb on Carrere's latest publication, which is a collection of his pieces, journalistic and otherwise, called 97,196 Words is the name of the collection. So I, I read that and it reminded me of how much I like Carrere. And it also reminded me that I've read everything by him except for a couple of the early novels and one of his later books called My Life is a Russian Novel. Let me begin by saying the Times had run an article a couple of years ago, which Gottlieb quotes, saying that Carrere is the most widely admired nonfiction writer in France, the most widely admired fiction writer being Michel Welbeck, who I also widely admire. In any case, in Carrere's case, I've just been consumed by him for 10 or 15 years now, really ever since the book that made his name The Adversary came out. And one of the problems I have is I don't quite understand why. His writing is riveting. And yet, if you ask me to explain what rivets me or a reader, I'd have a very hard time doing it. One of the obvious things to say is that he picks subjects that are really outlandish or outré. But if that were all that mattered, one could just say he's a kind of tabloid sensationalist. There's something in the writing, and the something has to do with, I think, his personal intrusion into his books. His, his books are always personally revelatory, as well as dealing with the subjects at hand. Pamela, you seem to be itching to say something. I know you like career. I do. Still. I mean, I think that 
while he writes about the extremes of experience, he doesn't do it as a kind of, you know, lurid observer. He engages with them and shows the ways in which we as readers, as observers, as writers, in his case, kind of grapple with these incredible extremes. I entirely agree, though I wouldn't want to deny the lurid aspect. I think that really is part of the appeal. I mean, we have to say we all have a tabloid reader inside of us, whatever else we have. And and there is that aspect to it. But there's something in the voice that one inherently trusts. Partly it's because he's so honest, even when the honesty is describing his own, you know, really sometimes terrible deeds or even more, his embarrassing deeds, embarrassment always being worse than committing crimes. And he's very good at that. Now, getting to my life as a Russian novel, it has all of that, yet I found myself disappointed by it. It's not the book that I would recommend as the first read of Carrere. There's somehow a way in which the voice is not as trustworthy. And I'll just pick one aspect of that, which is it really begins with another of these outre subjects, a man, a Hungarian who was described as the last prisoner of World War II. He was kept in a Russian hospital sanatorium for over 50 years, and somehow it was discovered that he was there and sent back to Hungary. And he was clearly crazed, half-crazed, psychotic, whatever. After all those years, he had never learned Russian in the 50 or so years he had spent in that sanatorium. And so you try to imagine what this man's life was. And it includes the horrendous fact that he had had a leg amputated at one point, maybe unnecessarily because there was no communication with the doctors or the Russians who were present. So the, the book begins with that. And that's fine. And that's typical career territory. But Carrere then decides he will go back to the little village, the backwater place where this Hungarian had been kept. And it's a completely nothing environment. There's no there there. And yet he decides to go back to make a movie. And much of the book is a description, often hilarious, of his efforts to film nothing. And yet you don't trust it because at least I as a reader kept saying, you idiot, of course you're going to be frustrated in this. What did you expect to happen when you went back? So there's a way in which the confidence that one has in Carrere's voice, or again, my confidence in his voice in the other books, especially something like Lives Other Than My Own, isn't present in this one. I think that what he does, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is he combines the raw honesty of a really great memoirist with the observational eye of a journalist and the imagination of a novelist. And it's rare to find those three all in one book. And I think that one of the things that interested me about reading the recent essay collection is that you see the essay that sparked the book, The Adversary. And it wasn't an essay, really. It was a, it was a report in, I think, the Nouvelle Observateur or another French publication, news publication. And even when he's writing what's essentially a news report, you, you can sort of see his skill in those three ways. But what's missing from the original report of this murder, this person who was supposed to be a doctor for the World Health Organization, but in fact had never even gotten a medical degree and had deceived everyone for two decades and his family before killing them all, is that in the first one, in the essay, you can see the sort of questions that he's beginning to ask. But even in the very first paragraph, he changes something when he writes the book that I think kind of crystallizes what he does so well, which is that the very first line of the adversary is something along the lines of, on the morning when so-and-so, I can't remember the, the non-doctor, the fake doctor's name, killed his wife, his two children, and his parents, and then tried to kill himself. I was going to a PTA meeting with my wife or partner. And so what he does in that moment is he is connecting those two events, bringing himself into it, and showing the kind of the disparity between those two, but also involving himself. Yes. And so it's it's... What I think he does so well is is he is constantly asking the question, like, why are we so fascinated with these lurid 
murderers or whatever they might be? What is it that draws us to them? And what does that say about us? And that's what he's constantly trying to get at in his work. And what Gottlieb points out in that essay for us is that he was having trouble writing that book, The Adversary, until he inserted himself into it. And so the career personality persona, really, is an important part of what he's about. And those qualities that you mentioned, you know, as I say, I have a hard time describing why I find him just so gripping. For me, he's just the best nonfiction writer going in France or America for that reason. But one of his literary models is someone who combined all of those qualities, and that's Montaigne. And so... So I think you're right, and that's as close, at least, as I could come to describing the fascination he holds for me. Concepcion, you are not getting away from the news cycle in your reading. What are you reading? So I decided to lean into politics, and I'm reading The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America by Charlotte Alter, who is a Time Magazine political reporter. And the book is, as the title pretty much implies, about a sort of new generation of millennial leaders. And so each chapter is dedicated to one millennial who has gotten into politics. And the argument of the book is essentially, or part of the argument rather, is that generations are sort of shaped by the most important events in their life. So for instance, like 9-11, like the Iraq war. And so it's all about what shaped these millennial leaders and what the future will look like under them in 20 and 30 and 40 years. I haven't gotten to that part, so I can't tell you what the future will look like yet. But what's been interesting to me about reading this is that I think that I, I tend to not really think about the things that happen in my lifetime as part of history. Obviously, they are. And obviously, I'm sure in you know 20 or 30 years, I will be able to look back at them that way. But like 9-11, it's like I I remember that like it was yesterday, as we all do. And so it doesn't feel very far away. And so I think of things that are like in the 60s and the 50s as far away. And I'm obviously uh, giving myself up as a millennial as well. Yes, you, you revealed <laughs> yourself. I mean, it's funny because when they, people talk about Gen X, which is my generation, yeah. they always say that the biggest event, the most formative event for that generation is the Challenger explosion which I didn't remember at all. I know. Well, I used to work a long time ago for a magazine called American Demographics, which was, you know, basically obsessed with generations. So I felt very alienated from Gen X, which I guess is a Gen X thing to be. What do you feel like the the events are for millennials or what does she identify or the people in that book identify as the monumental, pivotal events. Is it 9-11 in the Iraq War? 9-11 in the Iraq War, for sure. And then there's one of the early chapters talks about Harry Potter. And it also talks about how previous events and previous trends with like in previous generations also shaped our generation. Pamela, what are you reading? I'm going to still go over my vacation reading. I'm still working on on that that backlist now. So one of the books that I read was Zadie Smith's essay collection from 2018, Feel Free. I talked in a recent podcast about her story collection, Grand Union. And it's really interesting to read these two books together because they cover much of the same period. The stories were written over, you know, I think 10 or 12 years possibly longer, actually, because it was her first story collection. And these also overlap the same time period. I think, and I know most people think of Zadie Smith in terms of her novels, you know, N.W. and On Beauty and, of course, White Teeth. But to my mind, she feels like a natural essayist in the kind of classic sort of definition of what an essay is in that it's it's an attempt, you know, sort of coming from the, the French to essay. And... She does, I think, something similar to what Gia Tolentino does in her essay writing, which is that she's not writing polemics. She doesn't know necessarily what she thinks when she's going in. You can feel her kind of working out her thoughts on the page. And it, for me as a reader, at least, it, it's an incredibly engaging way to write because she's not telling you what to think. She's bringing you along and you're going through her process with her. And she's really prescient in a number of these essays. And I think I'm just going to talk about one of them, Generation Y, which is W-H-Y, ending in a question mark, which was ostensibly really a review of The Social Network, the David Fincher film about Mark Zuckerberg or the character Mark Zuckerberg and the launch of Facebook, which came out in 2010. So that makes this, you know, a 10-year-old essay. And yet everything that she's writing about, you know, she could be talking about today in terms of the way that social media affects people. And I'm just going to read from one 
section, she's talking about the way that Facebook becomes monetized and selling people to advertisers, selling our data, allowing us to sell ourselves. Is it possible that we have begun to think of ourselves that way? It seems significant to me that on the way to the cinema, while doing a small mental calculation, how old I was when at Harvard, how old I am now, I had a person 1.0 panic attack. Soon I will be 40, then 50, then soon after dead. I broke out in a Zuckerberg sweat. My heart went crazy. I had to stop and lean against a litter bin. Can you have that feeling on Facebook? I've noticed and been ashamed of noticing that when a teenager is murdered, at least in Britain, her Facebook wall will often fill with messages that seem not quite to comprehend the gravity of what has occurred. You know the type of thing. Sorry, babes. Missing you. Hoping you is with the angels. I remember the jokes we used to have. LOL. Peace. XXXXX. You could read it now, and it doesn't feel out of date at all. In fact, it, it feels like she knew everything way back before other people did. And the essays are divided by type. There's some literary criticism. There's a section of visual art criticism. One of the pieces I really liked was called Brother from Another Mother, which was her review of Get Out. I actually think that her essays are what she does best. I don't know. Have, have any of you read her novels? I have. Yeah. And I've read her. White I've read, Everyone's read that, I think. And I've read the essays, too, which I love. And I agree with you. It feels almost like you're in the room with her and her brain is sparking all these ideas and you're just sort of reading along and you're inside her head. And it's interesting to also see the ways in which the same things that she's exploring in these essays really do appear in that story collection. And the story collection... Often the stories feel more like essays. And when I interviewed her, I asked her about that, about sort of form and, and does she know what form something is, is taking before she goes into it? And she's really not that deliberate about it. I mean, with the exception of novels, and she's working on a novel today, which takes place in Russia in the 80s. So that's something to look forward to. And the other book that I read while traveling, I read on an airplane, and it really is the perfect airplane book in length and format, if not in sub. It's not a thriller. It's The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy. And Levy has been talked about on this podcast before. She's been nominated twice now for the Booker and I, or a finalist for the Booker, twice. And this is nonfiction. This is a memoir. And it's really about how do you get by as a writer. And so it's a subject of interest to writers, <laughs> the people who know them. And it's specifically about how you get by as a woman writer. She is writing this. This takes place about 20 years ago, I think, or from now, or maybe 15, shortly after her divorce. And she's raising two daughters who are older, but it's still about that sort of pull between work and childcare obligations. And at the same time, her mother is ailing. And what I didn't expect was I sort of thought of her as someone very serious, but she's really quite funny. And she has a really great moment. There, there are a number of them, but one of them involves her mother at the hospital, unable to eat anything. And so she's getting these ice lollies from a Turkish market. And her mother prefers certain flavors over the other. And she's talking how she'd go into the ice box and look. And she said, I'd slide the door open and search for the lollies, triumphant when I found the lime, good if I found strawberry, acceptable when I found the orange. I'd always buy two and then cycle to the hospital down the hill where my mother was dying. So she goes into the spin and her mother is really desperate and they don't have any of these flavors and all they have is bubble gum, which they know that her mother will despise. And she just throws like an epic kind of tantrum in the shop. And then later on, she writes, after her funeral in March, I thought I should go back to the newsagent and explain my weird behavior to the Turkish brothers. When I told them about the last weeks of my mother's life, they were so upset it was their turn not to speak. They shook their heads and sighed and groaned. After a while, the oldest brother said, if only you had told us. The brother who wore fashionable jackets picked up the conversation. If you had said something, we would have gone to the cash and carry and bought a ton for you while the third brother, whose voice was higher pitched than his older brother, thumped his hand to his forehead. I knew it was something like that. Didn't I say she was buying them for someone who was sick? They all looked angrily at the freezer as if it was personally responsible for the horror of the bubblegum lolly being the wrong sort of lolly in the last few days of my mother's life. That's very good. I love that. It's so great. It just, it has a number of moments like that that are just perfect. To get back to your earlier point, though, how did she get by as a writer? 
It's something that obviously we're all interested in. Well, she's very prolific. Those of us who have seen her galleys come across, I mean, she writes at an incredible pace. And this, to some extent, explains why. There's a book that I just finished, which I'll talk about in a later episode, Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. And that book takes place. It's two couples, and it's during the Depression. And one of them is a writer just trying to get by where academic jobs are really rare and writing pays very little. And he says, I wrote book reviews after book review after book review, desperate for the money. I think that, as we all know, writing is is not an easy way to earn a living, and it never has been. George Orwell has a a classic essay on being a book reviewer and, and, and the books and all these ridiculous subjects piling up on his desk. But I, I also think of some of the things that Mary McCarthy has written about when she was starting out in, in the 30s as a reviewer. And what always struck me when she described her life then was that it somehow seemed easier then. You could get by as a book reviewer. Maybe if you were Mary, it took being Mary McCarthy to get by as a book reviewer. But it didn't seem to be difficult. She could live in the village. She would write her reviews. She had her life. She wrote theater reviews as well. And I sometimes give talks now, as I'm sure we all do, to students and others. And one of the questions invariably is, you know, what does it take to be a freelance writer? And I tend to be fairly discouraging. It's not the way it was in Mary McCarthy's time, I say to the students, you should really either have a trust fund or a steady gig as a teacher because you need to have income that pays the rent. Well, they do it for the glory, Barry. All right, let's quickly run down the titles before we go. Tina, you read? I read Ruth Rindell's Vanity Dies Hard. Emmanuel Carrer, My Life as a Russian Novel. The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America by Charlotte Alter. And I read Zadie Smith's Feel Free and the Cost of Living by Deborah Levy. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, thanks Pamela. Goodbye. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.